All right, we're going to have at this time the chairman of the Reformed Baptist Mission Services, our brother, Pastor Jerry Slate. We, he's going to come and bring us a historical biography of Samuel Pierce. Then we'll have a break, and then we're going to have some time of theological discussion and interaction, and we will also have a couple of reports and we, I'm exercising my prerogative as chair, and though not a delegate, but a visitor, we're going to have our brother Oliver um, Almond Smith, not Smythe, to come and tell us of the situation in the UK, especially in England. So our brother, God has given us a wonderful gift in our brother Jerry Slate. So... Theologically sound. I'll never forget hearing his this given once before. I was so moved. And Lord and, and brother, I thank the Lord for your labors. He has labored tirelessly. He has kept the vision of biblical and reformed Baptist missions before our eyes. So, brother, please give us this report. And um, if we have some time, we'll have questions. And then we will have a break. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you here this morning. <clears throat> As Pastor Dell was giving us that wonderful exhortation this morning about finishing well, I was reminded of something I've told my congregation many times. I'm thankful to God, not only that he's given us his son and his spirit and his holy word, I'm thankful he's given us heroes. And... I've told my congregation many times that I prefer my heroes to be dead because I know how the story ends. They can't disappoint me. And so I'm thankful, and it's a great honor to be able to speak of one of my heroes in the faith, Samuel Pierce. But my goal here is not to exalt this servant of God. My goal is to set before you this life of this godly man whom God used in many mighty ways so that his Savior can receive glory. Because Samuel Pierce himself would want it no other way. Uh, so I, my desire and prayer is that as, we, as you come away from this presentation, you'll come away saying not what a great man Samuel Pierce was, but rather what a great Savior Jesus Christ is. So let's open in prayer. Our Father, we would pray that the Holy Spirit would exalt your Son, that you would be magnified, and that you would set before us the example of a man who's gone before, who ran well, and who by your grace finished well. And yet a man who, just like us, was a man with feet of clay, a man who was a sinner who needed to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and dressed in his perfect righteousness. So we pray, O oh Father, that the Spirit of God would own this to our hearts, that it would be transformative to us, and it would be a help to us to finish well also. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm in a room full of folks who love the written word of God, and I know I'm also in a room full of folks who love history in general and who love church history in particular. And is it just me, or have you ever wished that there really was such a thing as time travel? that you could step through a portal and go to any time and place you wanted to and could watch events unfold that at the time seemed to be of little consequence, yet with the benefit of hindsight, we know nothing was ever the same afterwards. 
For example, if I could step through a portal and teleport myself to Worms, Germany, on April the 18th, 1521, and hear John Eck look at Martin Luther and say, will you recant? And to hear him say, unless you can convince me by sound argument from the scriptures that I am wrong, I will not and cannot recant because my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. To watch the formal inauguration of the Protestant Reformation, I would love to be just a fly on the wall to see it. Or perhaps you wouldn't go to Germany, but what about July the 8th, 1741? To teleport yourself to Enfield, Connecticut, to the congregational meeting house that met on that Lord's Day evening. There was a pastor who had been invited to preach at the last minute. He was hindered, could not come. They scrambled to find a different preacher. The preacher grabbed notes from a sermon he had preached twice before without seeing any conversions. And he stood up to preach that evening. The man's name was Jonathan Edwards, and the sermon was sinners in the hands of an angry God. This time the Holy Spirit fell with such power and unction that it said that there were those gripping the pews in front of them till their knuckles turned white in fear that the floor would open up and swallow them right into hell. That night it is estimated that some 500 people were added to the kingdom through the preaching of the word that night. And to be able to hear him preach it would have been an unspeakable blessing. But if I could go anywhere, and I'm talking about after the last apostle died, we would all want to go back and meet Christ face to face. I know know that. But I'm saying after the New Testament. If I could go anywhere, I would choose Tuesday night, October the 2nd, 1792 in Kettering, England. I would go to a widow's parlor. There was a small little 10-foot by 12-foot parlor to be there, but it would be hard to get in because there would be 14 men in the room packed like sardines in this place. They had gathered in this place, in this 120-square-foot space, to start a mission society. Of the men who were there, 12 of them were particular Baptist pastors. One was a deacon and another was a ministerial student. If you had known of these men at the time, you would realize that they were nobodies from nowhere. Most of them were not well-known. The villages they pastored in wouldn't have even been heard of, have been heard of in London. Most of their uh, congregations were impoverished. Many of their congregations were illiterate. Uh, they were so impoverished, in fact, that one of the pastors there was bivocational, sometimes even trivocational, and barely lived above the poverty line. His name was William Carey. And just and the reason they were there that night was because earlier that year in May, he had met and preached a sermon on a Wednesday morning to the Northamptonshire Association of Churches, That sermon manuscript is not left to us. We don't have a copy of it. We do have the two exhortations that came from it, though. The two exhortations were expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And it was his call to arms that had led them to come to this place to form the missionary society. So before the night was over, they passed a resolution that said this. Humbly desirous of making an effort for the propagation of the gospel among the heathen, we unanimously resolve to act in society together for this purpose. We name this the particular society for the propagation of the gospel amongst the heathen. The leader of the meeting, Andrew Fuller, took his empty snuff box. It's always cracked me up. There was an empty snuff box. I get the impression they all had a pinch before they had the meeting. But he passed around his empty snuff box to take collections, paper pledges of financial support. 
and that was the seedbed for the mission. Three months later, on January of 1793, the society appointed their first two missionaries. The first was John Thomas, and the second was William Carey. The rest, as they say, is history. Now, I told you that of the 14 men who were there that October night, that 12 of the men were pastors. 11 of those men were from the Northamptonshire Association of Churches, men like John Sutcliffe, John Ryland Jr., William Carey, and Andrew Fuller. But the 12th pastor was not a part of the Northamptonshire Association. He was the 26-year-old pastor of the Cannon Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, England, and his church belonged to what was known as the Midlands Association of Churches. But his zeal for evangelism and his growing enthusiasm for missions what had earned him an invitation to come that night, and that man was Samuel Pierce. To have been in that room where Fuller and Pierce and Carey and Ryland were forming the mission would have been an unspeakable blessing. Now, Samuel Pierce is relatively unknown to, in our day, but in his own day, he was quite well known. In Pierce, uh, as we will see, we're gonna, he was a thoroughgoing Calvinistic Baptist. But for all that, he was no cerebral Calvinist. He was what we would call an experiential and evangelistic Calvinist. Jesus Christ was the champion of his heart. And he was head over heels in love with the God who had saved him from his sins And that love expressed itself in animating zeal for the spread of God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom in all the earth. Listen to some of the testimonies of his contemporaries. Doubtless many of you know the name William Ward. Uh, Carrie, Marshman, and Ward were the famous Serenport trio. William Ward spent a great deal of time with with, uh, Pierce when he was dying, uh, when he was upon his deathbed. He was actually filling the pulpit for him as he died. And he had several things to say about Pierce. Quote, How does personal religion shine in Brother Pierce? What a soul. What ardor for the glory of God. You see in him a mind wholly given up to God. A sacred luster shines in his whole conversation. It is impossible to doubt the truth of experimental religion if you are acquainted with Pierce. On another occasion he said, I have seen more of God in him than in any other person I ever knew. Andrew Fuller published his memoirs of Samuel Pierce in 1800, the year after Pierce had died, and it became an overnight bestseller. It was reprinted multiple times. He said of his friend, he is another Brainerd. John Ryland Jr. called him the Serific Pierce. Joseph Belcher, a man who printed some of Pierce's sermons, said this, who can read the lives of a Brainerd, a Whitfield, or a Pierce without feeling a desire to at least go and do likewise? Dr. Jim Renahan has recently uh, compared him to Robert Murray McShane, that he's the McShane of our Baptist heritage. Who is this young man that we've barely heard of in our own age, but his own contemporaries compared him to the likes of George Whitfield and David Brainerd? Well, I want to give you an overview of his life under four basic headings. First of all, I want to speak to you briefly about his times. Secondly, about his pastoral ministry. Third, about his missionary heart, and fourth, about his death, and then I'm going to make some applications at the end. So first of all, Pierce's times. Pierce was born on July the 20th, 1766, in Plymouth, England. He died at the age of 33 on October the 10th, 1799, in Birmingham, England. He lived in very politically turbulent times. Uh, In 1776, July 4th, 1776, to be exact, the... uh, 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America 
signed a declaration of independence, declaring their independence from Great Britain. Just 16 days later, Pierce turned 10. The American Revolution would not come to an end until Pierce was 17 years of age. 1789 was the year that Pierce became a pastor of Cannon Street, the first and only pastor he would ever serve. That same year saw a man named George Washington installed as president of the United States. I would submit to you, however, it was Pierce who was appointed to the higher office. That same year, in 1789, was also the beginning of the bloody French Revolution, which saw tens of thousands of French citizens literally slaughtered and losing their heads at the, at the guillotine, including the King Louis XVI and his uh, Queen Marie Antoinette. The revolution came to an end in, the, in 1799, the year that Pierce died, but it was also that same year, 1799, that Napoleon Bonaparte became, came into power in France. Pierce also lived in times when there was a heightened awareness of the godless and inhumane trafficking of African slaves. For four centuries, we had the largest forced migration in history as an estimated 12 million Africans were forcibly taken from their homeland and sold in places like Britain, the United States, the West Indies, and Jamaica. Of that 12 million, an estimated 2 million died upon the, in the horrid conditions of the slave ship. But these were the heady days of John Newton, William Wilberforce, and Equiano. How many of you have ever heard of a lot of Equiano? Equiano was a slave who was kidnapped from Africa. He endured the hardship of the slave ship and lived to tell the tale. Eventually, he gained his freedom and came to faith in Christ. He wrote a best-selling autobiographical account of the things he had endured. In the summer of the year 1790, he came to Birmingham, England, where Pierce was. He was raising subscriptions uh, from the people to pay for the printing of his book. Sixty-five people in town gave subscription to order a copy of the book once it was printed. Among them, Pierce's name appears in the newspaper. It is entirely like, very likely that Pierce and Equiano met that particular summer. Well, hopefully it gives you some sense of Pierce's times. Let me move on to his pastoral ministry. Pierce was raised in a Christian home. In fact, his father was a deacon at the Baptist Church in Plymouth, but he did not hold to his parents' faith, did not come to faith in Christ until his 16th year. According to his own testimony, he fell in with wicked companions and, quote, evil and wicked intentions filled his heart. But in the summer of 1782, that all changed. A minister by the name of Isaiah Burt came to the Plymouth Meeting House and preached for several successive Lord's Days. The Spirit of God owned the preaching to convict his heart uh, of his sin, show him his need of a Savior. And so by the grace of God, Pierce entered into the narrow gate of conversion to begin walking upon the difficult path of discipleship. The following summer, Pierce was baptized as a believer and added to the membership of the church. The date of his baptism was July the 20th, 1783. That was his 17th birthday. So he was added to the church, and very quickly, his piety, his love for the Lord, and his giftedness became very, very evident. In November of 1785, the church officially called him to begin preaching and commended to him uh, to prepare for the ministry at the Bristol Baptist Academy for three years, which was the only uh, Calvinistic Baptist training facility in the, in the country. And so Pierce completed that three-year course beginning in the fall of 1786 through the summer of 1789. During uh, his Christmas break of his final year, he ministered as an itinerant among the Cannon Street people. They loved him so much they asked him to come back in the summer and be considered as their pastor. 
So he began a year of probation in June of 1789 to evaluate whether or not they sh- he should be their pastor, and they called him to be their pastor where he would serve for the ten- remaining 10 years of his life. What was Pierce's ministry like? I want to tell you this under three basic headings. First, I want to talk to you about his theology. Secondly, about his preaching. And third, about his evangelistic zeal. First of all, what was Pierce's theology? What did he believe? I mentioned that the church he pastored was a part of the Birmingham, uh, or of the Midlands Association. On the cover of their cover letters, they had this brief but pungent statement of what their theology was. And this is what it says, quote, Maintaining the important doctrines of three equal persons in the Godhead, eternal and personal election, original sin, particular redemption, free justification by the righteousness of Christ imputed, efficacious grace and regeneration, the final perseverance of the saints, the resurrection of the dead, the general judgment at the last day, the life everlasting, and the independence of their respective churches. End of quote. That's quite the statement, isn't it? He has a, there's a lot there. First of all, it's, there's explicit Trinitarianism. Secondly, all five doctrines of free and sovereign grace are articulated. Did you hear that there's three imputations there? Original sin, particular redemption, righteousness of Christ imputed. That is, Adam's one sin was imputed to all his posterity. All the sins of all of God's elect were imputed to Christ upon the cross. And then all the righteousness of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, are imputed to every sinner who believes on him. A future resurrection and judgment and the eternal state and the autonomy of each local church were clearly believed in by these churches. But because this was coming from an association of churches, independence of each local church did not mean isolation of each local church. But we can go even farther than this. Two of the circular letters that uh, came from the Midlands Association were written by Pierce himself. And one of him was on the subject of justification by faith. Let me read you the opening two paragraphs of that particular doctrine. You're going to recognize a lot of stuff here. The point of difference between us and many other professing Christians lies in the doctrine of salvation entirely by grace. For while some assert that good works are the cause of justification... Some that good works are united with the merits of Christ, and so both contribute to our justification, and others that good works neither in whole nor in part justify, but the act of faith, we renounce everything in point of our acceptance with God, but his free grace alone which justifies the ungodly, still treading in the steps of our venerable forefathers, the compilers of the Baptist confession of faith, who thus express themselves respecting the doctrine of justification. Now he quotes from chapter 11 of our confession. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which is alone the instrument of justification. And then he makes this commentary. In this point, do all the other lines of of our confession meet? For if it be admitted that justification is an act of free grace in God without any respect to the merit or demerit of the person justified, then the doctrines of Jehovah's sovereign love in choosing to himself a people from before the foundation of the world, his sending his son to expiate their guilt, his effectual operations upon their hearts, and his perfecting the work he has begun in them until those whom he justifies he also glorifies will be embraced as necessary parts of the glorious scheme of our salvation. End of quote. 
Did you hear what he said? Our confession. He owns it. In other words, he was a confessional Reformed Baptist. Heard about those guys. Well, what about Pierce's preaching? Pierce was a man who, when people heard him, they never forgot it. Because his, uh, it was said that it was with peculiar unction of the Holy Spirit every time he preached. Many of you know the name of the Congregationalist minister from Bath, William J. He heard uh, William, uh, Samuel Pierce preach on many, ti- many, many times. He said this of him. When I've endeavored to form an image of our Lord as a preacher, Pierce has often represented himself to my mind than any other. In other words, what's it like to be under the ministry of Jesus? Listen to Samuel Pierce preach, and I think that's the closest thing you're going to find. What what were the characteristics of his preaching? First of all, it was thoroughly Christ-centered. He wrote a letter to a young minister giving him this counsel. He said, let your strength be employed in exalting the Savior. Aim at that and that only in your sermons. It will give us more pleasure one day that he was exalted by us than that we exalted ourselves. He was also, uh, he preached in self-conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We need light and we need heat. We need the Spirit of God to give illumination and application to the preached word. You and I have no power to manipulate the Holy Spirit. He's sovereign over us. We're not sovereign over him. But certainly we need to wrestle with God in prayer and plead with him through the merits of Christ to pour out his Spirit upon us. Pierce once told a friend, an observation once made to me helps to support me above water. If you did not plow in your closet, you would not reap in the pulpit. The third thing about his preaching is that he preached with fervent love for never-dying souls. Sadly, it's a contradiction of the human nature that we can preach with love for God, love for doctrine, love for preaching itself, and not have any love for God's people. And yet, this is not true of Samuel Pierce. His love for souls was very evident in the way that he preached. There's a touching anecdote of this that took place in May of 1794, Pierce had preached at the opening of a Baptist meeting house in Galesboro, Northamptonshire, and it was so well received in the Lord's Day that the people said, can you get him to preach again? And so he was asked to do this uh, the following morning on Monday, and his response was, well, if you'll find a congregation, I'll find a sermon. So the meeting was set up for 5 a.m. because it was an agrarian society that was made up of farmers, so they wanted to preach early in the morning before they went to work, and so they did so. So Pierce got up at 5 a.m. He preached to the congregation. Uh, The meeting disbanded, and him and Fuller and his friends sat down to eat breakfast. And Fuller was commending him for his sermon, but he gave some homiletical uh, uh, pointers to him. He says, you know, when you got to the end of your sermon, you seemed about to end when suddenly you stopped, and you seemed to repeat the sermon and give a summation of it for the next 15 minutes. And Pierce said, "It, it was so, but I had my reason. Fuller was like, well, out with it, man. What's the reason? Don't keep us clueless. So he said this, Well, my brother, you shall have the secret if it must be so. Just at the moment I was about to resume my seat, thinking I had finished, the door opened, and I saw a poor man enter of the working class. And from the sweat on his brow and the symptoms of his fatigue, I conjectured that he had walked some miles to this early service, but that he had been unable to reach the place until the close. A momentary thought glanced through my mind. Here may be a man who never heard the gospel, or it may be he is one that regards it as a feast of fat things. In either case, the effort on his part demands one on mine. So with the hope of doing him good, I resolved at once to forget all else, and in spite of criticism and apprehension of being thought tedious, to give him a quarter of an hour. 
gives you some sense of the kind of man that he was. So we've seen some things about his theology, about his preaching. What about his evangelistic zeal? Uh, Pierce preached three times every single Lord's Day, and then he would do what he called village preaching throughout the week. Two or three different times he would go to the surrounding villages and preach in those places. During his 10-year ministry, 335 members were added to the rolls, not by transfer of letter, but by profession of faith and baptism. 335. And that doesn't even include the people who, for whatever reason, did not join the church. And in the places where he preached, local churches began to spring up. Dr. Michael Haken documents at least five different villages surrounding Birmingham where where churches sprung up from the preaching that he was doing. Clearly, he had a great heart for evangelism. Let me give you just one sample from one of his sermons called An Early Acquaintance with the Holy Scriptures Recommended, in which you get a sense of the fervor with which he preached. He says this, The Bible alone can make us wise to salvation. That man is a sinner and that man, and that sin diminishes his present enjoyment and endangers all his future happiness, every conscience witnesses. But whom did the light of nature ever instruct in the way of salvation? In other words, general revelation is not sufficient to make us wise into salvation. He says this, but from revelation, from the holy scriptures, we obtain the amplest satisfaction on this important subject. Here, mercy. Heavenly mercy appears with pardons in her hands. Here the God we have offended passes by us proclaiming his name. The Lord God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, pardoning iniquity, transgression, and sin. Here we see a thousand sinners like ourselves successfully pleading for forgiveness or rejoicing in the mercy they have found. In these sacred pages, too, we find the God of mercy kindly inviting us, guilty as we are, to come boldly to a throne of grace that we may receive mercy and obtain grace to help in time of need. People clearly found in Pierce's preaching an irresistible Savior, and many were brought to faith in Christ through his ministry. So we've considered his times, we've considered his pastoral ministry. Third, let's consider Pierce's missionary heart. As the days approach for William Carey and John Thomas to be sent to India, these men began to realize we've never done this before. And we are inexperienced, we're young, we don't know what we're doing. And it was kind of like, okay, we're about to send these guys down into an unexplored creepy mine. Who wants to go down into the creepy pit? And Ender Fuller would later famously describe it this way. He said, our undertaking in India really appeared to me at its commencement to be somewhat like penetrating into a deep mine, which had never before been explored. While we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go the rope. Brothers and sisters, that's what we've got to do too. We may not be called to to, to be missionaries ourselves, but we are called to hold the ropes for those that are. How did Pierce himself hold the rope? Four very specific and tangible ways. The first was by fervent and effectual prayer. The Baptist mission was founded in October of 1792, but you can say in many ways it was really born in the prayers of God's people. Eight years earlier, the Baptist minister in Olney named John Sutcliffe had received a packet of materials from a friend in Scotland, and in it was a book written by Jonathan Edwards. It had been written a generation before. It was a call to prayer, and back in those days, you're probably aware that many of the book titles were like a table of contents. 
I mean, so they're really long titles. Now, this, what I'm about to give you is actually the short title. This is not the full title. This is the short title. This is the title. An humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people an extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last time. See, now you don't have to read the book. <laughs> Most people prefer the shorter title, An Humble Attempt. But Sutcliffe read it. He was moved by it. And so in 1784, he made a charge, a call to arms to the Northamptonshire Association of Churches. He said, brothers, let me propose this. In addition to our weekly prayer meetings, let's have a prayer meeting, all of our churches, on the first Monday of every month, praying specifically for God to revive our churches and to advance his kingdom in all the earth. They thought that was a great idea, and so they began to do it. And then in 1786, the Midlands Association also adopted the same practice. So when Pierce came to the Cannon Street Church in 1789, these monthly concerts of prayer were the most well attended of all the prayers, uh, of all the prayer meetings, and he said this about it. He said, I had observed that our monthly meetings for prayer had been better attended than the other prayer meetings from the time that I first knew the people in Cannon Street, but I thought a more general attention to them was desirable. I therefore preached on the Sabbath day evening preceding the next monthly prayer meeting from Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come, and urged with ardor and affection a universal union of the serious part of the congregation in this exercise. It rejoiced me to see three times as many the next night as usual. And from that time to this, they have discovered so much concern for the more extensive spread of the gospel that at our monthly prayer meetings, both stated and occasional, I should be as much surprised at the case of the heathen being omitted in any prayer as at an omission of the name and merits of Jesus. He said, my congregation was so engaged in mission that they couldn't utter a prayer in public without mentioning it, and I would be as surprised for them to omit the cause of missions as to omit the name of Christ himself. What if we serve congregations like that? And that was how God began working in the midst of God's people. The second thing, of course, is financial support. Financial support. I've already mentioned that the men passed around uh, Fuller's uh, empty snuff box on the October 2nd night that they formed the mission to take paper pledges of financial support. They had their second meeting on Wednesday, October the 31st, and Pierce was late to the meeting, and he wasn't a part of the executive committee at that time. But uh, the men were, were kind of downcast. We've started this mission, but there's no money, and we serve impoverished churches. But then Samuel Pierce arrived late, and he had great news for him. He said that the Cannon Street Church, after the October 2nd meeting, had decided to form an auxiliary that would do nothing but gather funds for the mission. And then he produced 70 British pounds that they had gathered in less than a month. The uh, meeting minutes for the day read, This put new spirits in us all. And they decided, maybe we should make Samuel Pierce part of our committee. <laughs> Both Pierce and Fuller, it is said, would traverse London and all the surrounding villages, gathering up money and soliciting funds for the mission. As a matter of fact, Andrew Fuller's grandson would later write and claim that these two men knew the back roads of England better than the postman did because they were so diligent in their labors. The third thing, the third way he held the ropes was through correspondence. The labor of world missions, perhaps we look at it with rose-colored glasses. Uh, for those who go on the mission field, that rose-colored uh, glasses and, and warm, fuzzy feelings don't last very long. Because you go, you leave your own home, you leave your own homeland, your own culture, to go to a culture that is completely alien to you. 
And the reality is you're isolated, you're lonely, you're full of culture shock, you don't belong to the culture you've gone to, but really in many ways you're not a part of the culture you've left. You're in a no-man's land. I spoke to a former RBMS missionary a number of years ago about this very fact and said, I bet it's really challenging. I bet the dross of your heart comes to the surface uh, when you're on the mission field. He says, oh, yeah. He said, the mission field is your sin nature or miracle grow because you see the garbage that comes out of you. Today, because we have the technologies of emails and Skypes and things like that, it does help relieve some of that stress. But in the 18th century, in which Carrie lived, you didn't have that kind of technology. It took five months by sea to get to India from where he was. Letters had to travel by the same route, and oftentimes they would get lost in transit. So you might go a year and never hear of anything from your homeland. You could write to your homeland, and they may never hear from you. So letters of correspondence were important. And Pierce himself put pen to paper often, and he said in one of his letters to Kerry, I am really mistaken if I have not been your most voluminous correspondent. The fourth and final thing was, the, was that Pierce became the editor of the society's periodical accounts. Periodical accounts would be published throughout England. They would have letters from Carey and from Thomas giving updates on what was going on. And this was very important because, first of all, it helped the churches to know how to pray intelligently and specifically for uh, the missionaries. But it also kept the cause of missions before the churches. So they were thinking about it and praying about it and contributing to it. It's very similar to our ARBCA update, which comes out once a quarter. Brothers, pastors... Print that thing out. Get it into the hands of your people. Encourage them to read it. Read it yourselves because it helps them to get to know who our missionaries and our national pastors are. Keeps them up to date on what's going on in IRBS and so many other things. Encourage you to put that in their hands. But nonetheless, all these things were very, very important. According to his great-grandson, Samuel Pierce invested about 25% of his pastoral labors holding the ropes for Kerry and his friends. But as tireless, as rigorous as the, and exhausting as the labors must have been, he said to William Carey in a letter, there is no part of my life which I've reflected on with so much pleasure as that which has been spent in behalf of the society. Well, given his love for missions, does it come to any surprise to any of us that Pierce began to have desires to be sent out himself? He certainly did begin to have those desires, and a couple of years after uh, Carey and, and Thomas had been sent out, he first expressed this to William Carey in a letter that was dated August 9, 1794, which never actually made it to Carey. But he began to express his desires this way. And so in order to, to discern God's will in the matter, he devoted a month to wrestling with God in prayer. From October the 8th to November the 7th of 1794, he did this on the Friday, the four Fridays of that particular time. He would fast all day and pray, and he also kept a journal. He began writing a journal of his thoughts. There's a number of things worth uh, quoting from there. I'll just give you a few scant things. October the 22nd, he did pen a letter to Andrew Fuller at requesting that the committee meet to consider the possibility of sending him as a missionary. November the 3rd, he wrote, If my brethren knew how earnestly I pant for the work, they could not withhold their ready acquiescence. He said in another place, I have often made it a constant matter of prayer, often begging of God, either that he would take away the desire or open the door for its fulfillment. And the result has been uniformly been that the more spiritual I have been in the frame of my mind, the more love I have felt for God, and the more communion I have enjoyed with him, so much the more disposed have I been to engage as a missionary among the heathen. And I have to tell you about his entry on October the 18th. He said this, I dreamed, I dreamed that I saw one of the Christian Hindus. Oh, how I loved him. 
I long to realize my dream. How pleasant will it be to sit down at the Lord's table with our brethren and hear Jesus preach in their language. Surely then will come to pass the saying that is written, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor, nor free. All are one in him. John Angle James would later read about this diary because the diary is reprinted in his memoirs that Fuller put out. He said of it, he made a commentary on, on this. He said, Piers zeal had all the light of a principle and all the fervor of a passion. He not only thought and talked and wrote and preached on the subject by day, but mused upon it in his slumbers. This is the spirit that will conquer the world for Christ. The man ate missions, drank missions, and he dreamed missions. Well, the time came on Wednesday, November the 12th of 1794, when in the morning uh, Pierce met with the executive committee to lay before them his desires and express to them his desire to be sent to India alongside Kerry. Two of his deacons went with him to beg them not to send him. They deliberated for a while. Uh, Pierce mentioned his uh, uh, journal, read a few excerpts from it, but did not make it available to the executive committee. Finally, they left the room and left the men to deliberate for two or three hours about the subject. And they finally came out and put a slip of paper into Pierce's hand. And it said this, The brethren at this meeting are fully satisfied of the fitness of Brother Pierce's qualifications and greatly approve of the disinterestedness I, I can't pronounce that, disinterestedness of his motives and the ardor of his mind. But another missionary not having been requested, and not being, in our view, immediately necessary, and Brother Pierce occupying already a post very important to the prosperity of the mission itself, we are unanimously of the opinion that at present, however, he should continue in the situation which he now occupies. What would most evangelical men do today? Fine. I've got the inner light. I'll go find somebody else to send me. That's what they would do. What did Pierce do? The very next day, he wrote a, let a letter to his wife, Sarah. He said this, I am disappointed, but not dismayed. I ever wish to make my Savior's will my own. I am more satisfied than ever I expected I should be with a negative upon my earnest desires. Because the business has been so conducted that I think, if by any means such an issue can be ensured, the mind of Christ has been obtained. He wrote to William Carey and said, instead of a letter you perhaps expected to have seen the writer. And had the will of God been so, he would by this time have been on his way to you. Upon receiving the committee's decision, I was enabled cheerfully to reply, the will of the Lord be done. And receiving this answer as the voice of God, I have, for the most part, been easy since. Pierce never went to the mission field. He stayed for the next five years, the remaining five years of his life at his post. And you think, well, surely... What he did was he said, I'm going to take my little red ball and go home. I'm not going to help the mission anymore. No. This is what he said. If I cannot go abroad, I will do all I can to serve the mission at home. And Fuller says of him, the decision of the committee did not in the least abate his zeal for the object. As he could not promote it abroad, he seemed resolved to lay himself out more for it at home. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. We've talked about Pierce's times, his pastoral ministry, his heart for missions. Finally, let's talk about his death. One of Newton's hymns, he has a line that says, Let me live a life of faith. Let me die thy people's death. I appreciate so much Dr. Waldron's uh, exposition to us yesterday and his talk about his godly mother. And now she finished well. 
and how she died the death of God's people. Even so, Pierce did as well. And we learn as much from his death as we learn from his life. The only complaint you'll ever find about Pierce by any of his contemporaries is two things. He worked too hard and rested too little, and he neglected his own physical health. Pierce had the joy of preaching at the installation of William Ward when they commissioned him to be a missionary. Uh, he preached that sermon on October the 16th of 1798 in Kettering. Uh, Fuller would write to uh, Carey later and say he preached like an apostle. Ward himself said of Pierce's sermon, he set the whole meeting aflame. Had missionaries been needed, we might have had a cargo immediately. Well, Pierce traveled back to, uh, from Kettering back to his homeland of Birmingham, and as he did so, he was caught in a torrential downpour. It chilled him to the bone, and he got sick. But rather than rest, as he should have done, he foolishly decided, I need to preach harder. He thought that what he called pulpit sweats would cure him of his agony. <laughs> of course, it made things worse. And then the Lord, on the Lord's Day, December the 2nd, 1798, six weeks after the downpour, he preached what would prove to be his last sermon at the Cannon Street, uh, in the Cannon Street pulpit. Pierce came down with what was probably pulmonary tuberculosis. His uh, stomach was very weak, and he would say that if he spoke above a whisper, he would feel like his lungs had been scraped with glass, and he would be in pain the rest of the day. His death was not an easy one. He would languish upon a deathbed for ten long months. So Ward filled the pulpit for him for part of that time. But let me tell you a few things that he said uh, during this time. Monday, the September the 10th, uh, or in, sometime in 1798, he wrote to a friend and said this, I would not have been without this trial for the Indies. It has taught me more of my Bible and my God than seven years mere study could have done. He said in another place, I find myself getting weaker and weaker, and so my Lord instructs me in his pleasure to remove me soon. You say, well, my dear brother, that at such a prospect I cannot complain. No, blessed be his dear name who shed his blood for me. He helps me to rejoice at times with joy unspeakable. Now I, now I see the value of the religion of the cross. It is a religion for a dying sinner. It was never until today that I got any personal instruction from our Lord's telling Peter by what death he should glorify God. Oh, what a satisfying thought it is that God appoints those means of disillusion whereby he gets most glory to himself. It was the very thing I needed for all of all the ways of dying. That which I most dreaded was by a consumption in which it is now highly probable my disorder will issue. But, oh, my dear Lord, if by this death I can most glorify thee, I prefer it to all others. And then he said this in another letter about three weeks uh, later in August of 1799. The thought is my constant burden that the being I love best always sees something in me which he infinitely hates. Oh, wretched, wretched man that I am. The thought even now makes me weep. And who can help it that seriously reflects he never comes to God to pray or praise, but he brings what his God detests along with him, carries it with him wherever he goes, and can never get rid of it so long as he lives. Come, my dear brother, will you not share my joy and help my praise that soon I shall leave this body of sin and death behind to enter on the perfection of my spiritual nature and patiently to wait till this natural body shall become a spiritual body and so be a fit vehicle for my immortal and happy spirit. 
Pierce fell asleep in Jesus on October the 10th, 1799. He was 33 years old, the same age as his Lord when he died. Just a few months before his death, uh, Andrew Fuller was making the 70-mile journey from London to his home in Kettering in a horse-drawn carriage. And he said that as he was traveling, he was thinking of that dear man Pierce wasting away at Plymouth, and he was overcome for miles together with weeping. And he cried out in prayer with tears streaming down his face, and I think it's the greatest testament to Pierce's life that, that anyone could have given. He said, let the God of Samuel Pierce be my God. Pierce had lived his life for God's glory, and nothing would have pleased him more than to find that his friends were being having their attention of their gaze of their soul fixed upon his great God. Three applications I, I would like to make. The first is this. Those who send out missionaries are as important to the work of world missions as those who are sent. I was in a, had the privilege of being taught in a Bible college that has a very good reputation for its missions-mindedness. But oftentimes in our chapels, this was not from our professors but from students, we would hear phrases like this, if you cannot go to the mission field, at least you can be a sender. Now, what do you hear in that word? Somehow you're not quite as spiritual if you're just a sender. But you know, the Bible doesn't view it that way. Uh, we all are familiar with the uh, golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8. It has five links in the chain that succeed one another, right? You have God, those whom God foreknew, these he also predestined, whom he predestined, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. I left one out in the links. <laughs> um, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Five links in the chain. Romans chapter 10 comes after Romans chapter 8. And there we have the, the another golden chain, the golden chain of world missions. And it too has five links. Paul gives them in reverse order. Listen to what he says. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Then he goes on to say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, to be saved, sinners must cry out to God for mercy upon their souls. They call. That's the first link of the chain. But before they can call upon him, they have to believe on him. But they can't believe on Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus. And they can't hear of Jesus unless someone preaches Jesus to them. And no one can preach Jesus to them unless they are sent. This is a non-negotiable part as a matter of fact, brethren, you ever noticed in the New Testament when the first New Testament missionaries, Barnabas and Saul, were sent out? God did not speak to them and say, go. He spoke to the local church in Antioch and said, send. We must be senders. As a matter of fact, this is a part of why the committee chose to not send Pierce to the mission field. There were two basic reasons. You may ask yourself the question, were they wrong? Did they make the wrong decision? It's interesting that after his death, they had access to his diary. And when they read the diary, they said, we would have sent him had we known what he had written. But they weren't given access to the diary. But there were two things that, uh, that, that, that kept him from doing it. First of all, Pierce was a very popular and well-known preacher at the time. 
And they were a little bit concerned that if we send the best of our men out to the mission field, our people are going to grow cold to the, the issue of world missions because they're not going to lose their pastors. That was one concern. But the other concern was no two men worked harder at home supporting the mission than Fuller and Pierce. Uh, Fuller had had a minor stroke that had paralyzed one side of his face at the time that they were deliberating, and it was possible that he was going to have to resign from the, from the mission because of, of it, probably had what's called Bell's palsy. And so that was a very real challenge. If Fuller had resigned and you had, and then Pierce was gone, who was going to be left to hold the ropes? And the men understood the importance of the position he occupied and said, you're more important here than you are on the field. And I think they probably made the right decision in that, in that regard. Um, we need to realize, brothers, it's important for us to be solid in missiology ourselves. You know something? Missiology isn't just for missionaries. It's for laymen. It's for pastors of sending churches. It's for all of us to hold the ropes. I've seen that y'all have taken on these all the pamphlets just about for the School of World Missions. I'm excited about that. Now fill them out and register. Because we all need missiology. We need that missiology because if I've got to hold the ropes, I want my spiritual biceps to be strong to know how to hold the ropes. And so they understood this about him. And this is a life we, it's a lesson we learned from Pierce. We learned the practicality. He prayed, financial support, correspondence, periodical accounts. These are the ways in which he held the ropes. And it gives us a roadmap for how we are to hold the ropes as well. The second application, it may be the most important application I'm making because it's the reason that Pierce is my hero more than anything else. Men who cannot submit to authority have no business being in authority. Look at the qualifications of a pastor given to us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. As I have taught young men who have aspirations to ministry, I think it's a shock them more than anything else when I talk to them about not being self-willed. Because I tell them, you may think you should go into the pastor because you want to be the guy in charge. But if you don't know how to submit to pastoral authority now, don't go into the pastorate. Because if you don't like pastoral authority and accountability now, you're really going to hate it when you're a fellow elder with, with some of them. One of the questions I like to ask men in ordination councils is, how do you submit, what is your attitude towards your pastors right now? And I like to ask his wife, tell me, what's, how does he speak of his elders on the way home from church? In other words, what is his attitude towards authority? Because, you know, a man who's in authority but who's not under authority is by definition a dictator, an authoritarian. James tells us about the character of heavenly wisdom. And it's interesting, one of its characteristics is it's willing to yield. It's willing to yield. You see, the truly wise man is not the guy who's got all the sum total of wisdom in his own head between his two ears. He's the man who knows he doesn't have the sum total of all wisdom, and he submits to godly counsel. Here were his peers, godly brothers, band of brothers. Here were fervent desires and peers so that he dreamed about missions, and yet they tell him no. And he says, I take it as the mind of Christ. I submit to it. Carrie's my hero because he went, and Pierce is my hero because he stayed. Because in one sense, I'm going to tell you something. I'd follow a man like that blindfolded. How many self-willed elders does it take to disrupt an eldership? For that matter, 
How many self-willed messengers does it take to disrupt the unity of an association? And it's pride. It's the spirit of Diotrephes that says, I want to be somebody. I want to have the preeminence. I want to have my way. And if I don't get my way, well, I'm just not going to be a part of your team. We look at Pierce. We see he's such a skilled man, such a fervent man, and yet willing to yield. And this is the thing that makes him a hero. We need men like him today, don't we? And that brings me to my third and final point. We see, are seeing a great recovery of the theology believed and preached by our forefathers, and we rejoice and thank God for it. I thank God for the old past. I thank God for our confession. Standing on our confession, I feel I can preach the whole counsel of God in a way I couldn't anywhere else. And that's why I love it so much. But with that recovery of theology, brothers, we don't just need a recovery of good theology. We need a recovery of godly men. You know, as you look at those qualifications for an elder, there are skill sets there, apt to teach, able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and rebuke those who contradict. And those are absolutely essential. But do you realize that in those qualifications, there's more said about a man's graces than about his gifts? Not just what gospel does he preach, what gospel does he live in his home, before his wife, before his children, in his community, the way he lives. How does that instruct him? Is the transforming power of the gospel evident in his lifestyle? It's a measure of his sanctification because we lead not just by our words but by example. The truth is most lessons our congregation learns are caught rather than taught. And character is what sustains us by God's grace in the midst of hardship and turmoil. We see in Pierce a man who was head over heels in love with his God. And because of it, he loved people. He loved his word. He loved preaching. Paul could say to his young protege, Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Don't neglect the theology, but look at your own growth and grace. Give attention to your own walk with Christ. My fellow brothers in the ministry, isn't it so true that we get so much like Martha? We're so busy about so many important things. Martha could say, won't you help? Won't you tell my sister to help me? And we can resonate with that. But what did Jesus say? Mary has chosen the better part. She's sitting at my feet. And it will never be taken away from her. And sometimes in the ministry, sometimes we need to set aside the busyness and just say, I need to sit at the feet of my master. I need to take from Jesus. So often like the Shulamite bride, she says in Song of Solomon 1.6, she says, I was appointed to attend the fields of others. My own field I've neglected. I feel that way in the ministry sometimes. That we need to give attention to our own growth and grace if we're going to finish well. To our own dealing with sin in our life. We see in Pierce a brother who finished well, a man who was godly, who loved the Lord. May God be pleased to raise up such men in this generation for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for godly examples. We pray that you'll help us to emulate them by your grace. For in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you, brother, for that very moving account of this great servant of Christ. We're going to take a break, and we will reconvene here at 10, 10.50. You are dismissed. Go by the book room. Brother, get down there and get that door open now. And...
We're running five minutes late, but it's worth it. You're dismissed. Go. Thank you, brother.